Which one you get? I don't know. Nathan Jr., I think. Give me here. Here's the instructions. Oh, he's beautiful. Yeah, he's awful damn good. I think I got the best one. I bet they were all beautiful. All babies are beautiful. This one's awful damn good, though. Don't you cuss around him. He's fine, he is. I think it's Nathan Jr. We are doing the right thing, aren't we, Hi? I mean, they had more than they could handle. Well, now, honey, we've been over this and over this, and there's what's right and there's what's right, and never the twain shall meet. But don't you think his mama will be upset? I mean, overly? Well, of course she'll be upset, sugar, but she'll get over it. She's got four little babies almost as good as this one. It's like when I was robbing convenience store. <laughs> I love him so much. I know you do, honey. I love him so much. I know you do. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 348, Raising Arizona. This was on my list of episodes that I wanted to do before we died. Is Mm it? Well, yeah, when you asked me to come up with five. This was on it? Yeah. No, it wasn't. Get the fuck out. You had Wild at Heart and this? Two of the same Nick Cage performances? <laughs> Get out of here, you liar. I swear this was on it, and you were like, I can't believe you put that on the list. You ridiculed me for it. No, this is a made-up story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, you may have noticed different entrance music. Yes, that's right, entrance music. <laughs> we're walking out. This chair is empty, the couch is empty, we start in our dressing room, and then the entrance music hits that you hear. You oh, hear that clip, right. and then... We walk out. Our song starts. Now we're back to the classic one. We're out of Greatest October. And yeah, we make our way to our microphones and we start. It's Matt, like, uh, Matt and I don't talk off mic ever. No, no. And you can we see just why. We each other. It's seething. Brings up these fake memories. <laughs> okay. Fake news. You're like my parents. <laughs> it, they always do that where they, we agree to something being a thing. And then like I'll talk to them like three months later and they're like, you never said that. Oh, you mean like... The revisited choice that we were doing on Christmas <laughs> that you swore we were done with this movie and yeah. now we're redoing it. But that's never been a, a mystery. I didn't pull it back. So you're saying that you're insinuating that I didn't like this movie. You didn't like this being on my list of movies. That, well, fair enough. Yeah. Because it was your list. Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Greatest October is over. Another one in the books. I think it went pretty well. Oh, yeah. A lot of work, a lot of hours (laughs) of entertainment provided to you, the listener. Yeah. (laughs) I know it was a lot, so I'm sure there's a decent percentage of you that didn't listen to all of them or are still working your way through it. But nevertheless, please drop us an email, greatestpod at gmail.com, and give us your thoughts on how Greatest October went. We're back to normal now. We're going to run through the listener requests in a second. Mm Mm-hmm. 
it's a whole adjustment period, really, because I poured myself into October. I and now this is like a time to reset, but we're just going to keep it going. Yeah, we did take a long break in September. Yeah. So we're <laughs> back at it already. Although it wasn't really a break for you. <laughs> That's true, but mentally it was. Okay, good. I'm just thinking you might need to rest more. Probably, which fits in with the whole listener request conversation, which we'll get to. Here's the announcement. We're not doing them. We're <laughs> refunding everybody's money. No, we're not <laughs> refunding any money. <laughs> the money's spent. <laughs> we can't refund it. I got three different versions of the Exorcist 4K. <laughs> yeah, that's what I spent it on. <laughs> Folks, I'm completely lost at this point, but mm-hmm. let's run through everything real fast. Follow the show on X slash Twitter at Greatest Pod. Drop us a line there. Hit us up. Slide into the DMs. Whatever you want to do, we love to hear from everyone. And you can also reach us via email, greatestpod at gmail.com. We'd love to read your emails on the show. Please give us your anecdotes about movies you love or your specific listener requests if you've already done them. If you'd like a free sticker, as always, you can let us know and we'll ship that out to you. And Letterboxd, Zach1983. Matt Crosby on there. Before we dive into Raising Arizona, I promised everyone that we would do a listener request review, make sure we're on the same page. If you have given us money and you do not hear your name, please reach out either via email or on X because this is the lockdown schedule right now. November, this month, in the coming weeks, we have Big Al and Dr. Steven. I'm calling him Dr. Steven because he is Dr. Steven, but also because we have another Steven coming up. Okay. This is like the Stern show now where all of our listeners have like character names. <laughs> Marianne from Brooklyn is in December. <laughs> December's listener requests are Justin and Aaron. Get used to hearing Aaron's name. It's coming up a lot. <laughs> January, right back at it with Aaron again, and that other Steven. So there's oh, the other Steve, the Steven. Yeah. there's that other Steven. February, Sarah and Chris S. March, Chris K. and Martha. April, Theodore and Keith. May, Aaron again. <laughs> and I guess in everyone's interest, we've split up Aaron's last one, which will be coming in September. That's not important to anyone other than Aaron. But needless to say, there are eight slots left for 2024. Right now, you can still get the same prices. $50 for a movie up to two and a half hours, 75 up to three hours. Get that into us via X slash Twitter or greatestpod at gmail.com. At the end of the year, the price will increase to $100 for all movies up to three hours, no matter what. And that number of slots will also greatly diminish I was doing the math. I'm not going to explain how we got there, but because I know <laughs> okay, it's complicated. Yeah. But since I split up Aaron's last two listener requests based on what the movies are yeah. to be May and September, that means if we get to the end of 2023 and we don't get any more listener requests, those two are considered filled. And then we go from having eight slots left to just one for July, one for August, and one for December. So then you're down to three. That is on the table, but mm. we could have as many as eight. So. If you have one, don't wait. Is that clear to everyone? Is if everyone you have one, don't wait. To that? If you have one, don't wait. That's yeah. all you need to know. If you didn't hear your name, it's because we decided we didn't like your movie. 
and like Matt Damon and Departed, we've just deleted your profile from our database of listenership. <laughs> no, I think that is everyone. Yeah. But anyone, if there's any confusion, anything, as always, greatestpod at gmail.com. Let's get into Raising Arizona. Seems like we do a Coen Brothers movie almost every November. Yeah. I know we've done No Country for Old Men twice in November. We did Fargo in November. Miller's and now Crossing. That was not in November, okay. but now we're doing Raising Arizona, 1987, directed by Joel Cohen, with his brother Ethan, uncredited, written by Joel and Ethan Cohen, budget $5.5 million. box office $29.2 million. This was their second feature film after Blood Simple. If you have not already seen Raising Arizona or would like to rewatch it for the purposes of listening to this podcast... You can stream it right now for free on Hulu or, of course, streaming rental. Well, if you put this on a list of episodes you wanted to do with Wild at Heart. I don't think it was Wild at Heart. I put um, No, Wild at Heart was 100% on that list, as was The Place Beyond the Pines, unless we're talking about two different lists. I'm thinking of the five you wrote right around episode 100. Did you know No, this was time? more recent than that. Oh, I, ignore, asked... I ignored those oh. lists. <laughs> <laughs> you asked me for a list of like five movies just to do before and we the did pot zero is over. Them, I'm assuming. Um, I don't even remember one of them's this. On the, I, there was another David Lynch movie, not Wild at Heart, that is on the list. You already had it on the list either way. Right, yeah. Well, what else? I'm curious now. What else was on this list? I don't list? know. I can go back to my notepad. This was from how long ago? Over the last couple of years at some point. <laughs> <laughs> well, it goes well, you know how the schedule is. It goes to show you that my mind has expanded as to what we might cover on the show, mm-hmm. but I've always liked this movie, so I find it weird, unless I was just in a mood. Half the time if I say, yeah, that's if true. I show interest in something, you're just like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. But, in all fairness, <laughs> most of the things you like are horrible. And this definitely isn't a movie that I watch all the time, it had been quite a while, but I have an early memory of seeing it play, actually on Comedy Central, which, it's not like I sit down and watch this movie, I'm belly laughing. I know it is like a comedy yeah, but there it, are a couple very funny sequences, but yeah, I don't find myself laughing out loud right. a ton. But I saw it on Comedy Central when I was pretty young, and I came in like towards the part where he's fighting the big motorcycle gangster dude, Leonard Smalls. Right. And it just had such a weird, quirky vibe in a way that I think it was the first time that I saw something like that. Like it struck me as being different. Yeah. And well, it, I do think that the tone and the universe w- in which these events take place has been hard to nail down yeah. for viewers for decades. And I think at a time before people were used to who the Coen brothers were, I think that that did sort of keep certain audiences at arm's length. It's not as if every review of this film was a rave. It was actually sort of mixed. I think a yeah. lot of people were like, what is this? I saw Ebert didn't really like it. Yeah, and I think that even a lot of other respected critics from the era, Pauline Kael, et cetera, they weren't trashing it, but they didn't really get it. Yeah. Because their first film, Blood Simple, was dead serious, and this is a complete opposite direction, intentionally so. Right. Well, I think when you take these first two movies, you kind of get the whole Coen Brothers thing. Yeah, because even when I was doing the notes, I was thinking, yeah, they wanted to establish that they could work in a bunch of different genres. And then I was thinking, well, they really kind of only have (laughs) those two speeds. 
the serious yeah. thriller noir version of this and then the comedy version right. of this. And they're all kind of the <laughs> <Yeah>. same. <laughs> you see shades of their future career a lot in this movie, though. You see a little bit of Fargo, a little bit of Miller's Crossing. I, I think it takes place in a similar fairy tale type universe. Yeah, the difference is that Miller's Crossing is completely made up right. the world that they're in. And this is taking place in a real state, in a real yeah, city. Yeah. But yeah, it's not quite reality or anything. The Coen brothers started working on Raising Arizona with the idea to make it as different as possible from their previous film, Blood Simple, by having it be far more optimistic and upbeat. The starting point of script writing came from the idea of the character of High who has the desire to live a regular life within the boundaries of the law, to create their character's dialect, Joel and Ethan created a hybrid of local dialect and the assumed reading material of the characters, namely magazines and the Bible. In contrast to Blood Simple, the characters in Raising Arizona were written to be very sympathetic. The Coens wrote the character of Ed for Holly Hunter. The character of Leonard Smalls was created when the Coen brothers tried to envision an evil character not from their imagination, but one that the character, meaning High, would have thought up himself. His name is widely thought to be a reference to the character of Lenny Small from John Steinbeck's novella Of Mice and Men. Hmm. John Goodman was drawn to characters of great feeling, guys who could explode or start weeping at any moment. Oh, yes. And became a frequent collaborator following his performance as Gail Snotes. The script took three and a half months to write. Yeah, that is funny because all characters, including outside of the Coen Brothers world, that John Goodman plays are kind of that guy. Right. <laughs> this is the 80s that people don't really think of and they don't always talk about and they don't remember necessarily when talking about eras of filmmaking and trashing the 80s as one of the worst, which it generally is as far as Hollywood goes. But there was this little undercurrent of cool people coming together oh for sure because this movie you can see all over the camera work sam raimi from the evil dead right which the coen brothers worked on and were friends with sam raimi and they're all together with francis mcdormand they're all making these movies some of them are terrible crime wave <laughs> dark man no dark man's not terrible but you know yeah. what i'm saying there's like all these movies not all of them are coen brothers movies some of them are raimi right then you have David Lynch, and you have a few other people coming up, too. They're not really related, but there's good stuff in the 80s that's happening, but it's sort of being lost underneath the giant Sylvester Stallone, Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger feud or at the box office <laughs> right. or whatever. Batman Returns. <laughs> well, that was 92. Yeah. Okay. Maybe the first Batman. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of the Sam Raimi, watching this movie on this viewing, it was reminding me of After Hours a little bit, too, with all the crazy camera work that's going on oh yeah for sure there's definitely some some similarities there too i think it's a fun movie like you i don't find myself revisiting it super often i think people older than us maybe five to ten years older than me this is one of their big movies for cinephile people i often hear this cited as a favorite film amongst yeah that generation a little bit older than me. I think so. This is a film that they rewatched a million times. It's PG-13, so a lot of people were probably seeing it at a younger age. There's not really anything objectionable in it. It's goofy. Adults can like it. Right. It's just one of those ones that 
your cousins, your parents, whoever, there's a VHS in, in the mix and everyone's cool with it and anybody could pretty much watch it, including grandma and your six-year-old sister. So it's one of those movies that if it worked its way into your family, you probably watched it a lot. There was a time period, I know this has kind of been maybe our whole lives, but there was a very specific time period where I feel like hating on Nicolas Cage was a very popular take. And yeah. somewhere in the mid-2000s, it reached a peak where it was just a thing that everybody thought they were smart to think that Nicolas Cage was terrible. <laughs> like, it was Even just, though it wasn't really that unique or smart right, or interesting I know, of a take. Everybody had that take, but it was always... With the exception of, and there would always be a couple movies, whether it was Leaving Las Vegas or whatever, but this one was always named Yeah, in that. Well, I definitely think that there are eras of Nick Cage's career. Even though he did make bombs and movies that are not really considered great, he was pretty much golden up through his first action star run. Yeah, yeah. Which included The Rock and Con Air and all that shit. And then once he started getting past that, so at that point you're over a decade into his career because he'd already been around since the mid-'80s. Right. Then, you know, I remember when Adaptation came out, okay, here we, this is the guy that won the Oscar. Yeah, right. Because at that point it already started getting weird. Yeah, yeah. And then it kept getting worse and worse. But at least he's always reliable enough to deliver a performance. Now, sometimes Absolutely. it's absurd, but... <laughs> I think he's pretty restrained in this. We'll get into his whole relationship with the Coens. I think they had to rein him in and, and create their vision because he was interested in yeah, other things. I did see it pop up in some of the research I was doing that he was very into the project, but almost to the point that they had to be like, all right. Well, they're <laughs> very a bit much. particular. Yeah. There's some directors the where there's a lot of improv- yeah. improvisation, and the Coens aren't really like that. They want it a certain way. They vision. have it specifically how they think it should be. Because they are auteurs that suck you into their unique world, their singular creation. Raising Arizona is no different. It speaks a language all its own. It moves at a pace all its own. It mixes surreal elements with comedy. But there's also some real emotion, some real relationship stuff. And I think that for people our age, we're probably a little older than who this movie was originally intended to hit hardest, but society has changed. Yeah, for And sure. now man-children are even older. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because this is definitely a story about a guy at a crossroads and deciding if he wants to start a family with the woman he loves and settle down and have responsibilities and take care of someone, a child who needs him, or... Mm-hmm. Live that fun life. Is he going to keep robbing convenience <laughs> stores with these degenerates? And continuously go back to jail, which maybe is a place where he's most comfortable. The film was influenced by the works of director Preston Sturgis and writers such as William Faulkner and Flannery O'Connor, who was known for her Southern literature. She also has a great sense of eccentric character, Ethan Cohen told one interviewer. Joel and Ethan showed the completed script to Circle Films, their American distributor for Blood Simple. Circle Films agreed to finance the movie. The Coens came to the set with a complete script and storyboard with a budget of just over $5 million. Joel Cohen noted that to obtain maximum from that money, the movie has to be meticulously prepared. So let's jump into it. Convenience store robber H.I. 
also known as High McDonough, played by Nicolas Cage, meets police officer Edwina Ed, no last name, right? Holly Hunter, as she takes his mugshots and photographs his Mr. Horsepower woodpecker tattoo before one of multiple sentences in prison. For High, it's definitely love at first sight. Oh yeah, just a old-fashioned meet-cute. Short for Edwina, turn to the right. <laughs> Her accent and voice is so crazy. Yeah. And yet, it turns into this fully fleshed out, rounded out, lovable character by the end. But yeah. <laughs> you don't know anything about her. She has this strange southern accent, and they're living in Arizona. She's a police officer, cute as a button. Very stoic. But no family or friends, evidently. Yeah. <laughs> no last name. <laughs> Just hanging around. Willing to date a convict. I've always found Holly Hunter to have a very rigid presence. I kind of get what you mean, but I bet that she's actually probably pretty fun. I'm sure. If you're saying yes when you get the script to crash, (laughs) not the Oscar winner crash, but the Cronenberg crash. The good crash. And you're like, yeah, I'll do this movie. I think you seem pretty cool. I agree. (laughs) The relationship between Cage and the Coen brothers was respectful but turbulent. When he arrived on set, and at various other points during production, Cage offered suggestions to the Coen brothers, which they largely ignored. Cage said that, quote, Joel and Ethan have a very strong vision, and I've learned how difficult it is to accept another artist's vision. They have an autocratic nature. Joel replied that he understood why Cage would make that statement, saying that, quote, it was a lot of fun working with Nick, but that some of his improvisations clashed with their vision and had to be edited. However, the Coens clarified that they would much prefer working with an actor who like Cage, possessed a fertile imagination over one whose performance needed to be kick-started. Kevin Costner came very close to landing the role. Oh, wow. Cannot really envision that. No, I view this as a Nicolas Cage movie. It has to be him. To be fair, I think that once he does it and puts his stamp on it, it is always going to be impossible to imagine because I'm sure whatever Costner would have done would have been so different that you would have never dreamed of this being a Nick Cage movie. Right. Because he's just bringing that Nick Cage energy that no one else can replicate. According to Ethan Cohen, Nicolas Cage was crazy about his woodpecker haircut and that it reacted to H.I.'s stress level. The bigger the danger he's in, the bigger the wave in his hair gets. And if you're wondering what the H stands for, you find out later in the film. Hair. Herbert. (laughs) Hair? He signs that letter at the end of the movie. Or middle of the movie. He's <laughs> got a wild hair situation here. His name is Hair. <laughs> Hunter turned down Abby in Blood Simple, a role ultimately accepted by her roommate at the Yale School of Drama, Frances McDormand. How about that? She stayed in the clique, though, and as I mentioned, the Coens wrote the part of Edwina specifically for her. Upon a return trip to lockup, High learns that Ed's fiance has left her and wastes no time. He proposes marriage after being released, and for some reason she accepts. We have no <laughs> idea why. <laughs> well, there was always a little chemistry between these two. She said her fiancé had run off with a student cosmetologist who knew how to apply her feminine wiles. Oh, son bitch. Don't forget his phone call, lad. Tell him I think he's a damn fool, Ed. You tell him I said so, H.I. McDonough. 
And if he wants to discuss it, he knows where to find me. In the Maricopa County Maximum Security Correctional Facility for Men, State Farm Road, number 31, Tempe, Arizona. I'll be waiting. I'll be waiting. I can't say I was happy to be back inside, but the flood of familiar sights, sounds, and faces almost made it feel like a homecoming. Most men your age high are getting married and raising up a family. Well, factually, they... they wouldn't accept prison as a substitute. Would any of you men care to comment? Well, sometimes your career's got to come before family. Worst what's kept us happy. I tried to sort through what Doc Schwartz had said, but prison ain't the easiest place to think. And when there was no meat, we ate fowl. And when there was no fowl, we ate crawdad. When there was no crawdad to be found, we ate sand. You ate what? We ate sand. You ate sand? That's right. Well, hi, you done served your 20 months. And seeing as how you never use live ammo, we got no choice but to return you to society. These doors gonna swing wide. I didn't want to hurt anyone, sir. Hi, we respect that. But you're just hurting yourself with this rambunctious behavior. I know that, sir. Okay, then. I don't know how you come down on the incarceration question, whether it's for rehabilitation or revenge, but I was beginning to think revenge is the only argument makes any sense. A big theme of the movie is recidivism, which is a hard word for me to say for some reason, but just that idea of escaping your cycle. Yeah. The rut that you find yourself in, your patterns, your repeated behavior... Can someone really change? Yeah, exactly. And it's not very hard to decipher what the movie's going for. They right. put it right out in front of you, and they use the word recidivism, and it's essentially this big, giant metaphor. He keeps going back to prison. It's this cycle over and over and over, and then all of a sudden he meets Edwina, and now it's a question of whether or not the cycle can be broken. Yeah, and we're at this place now. Now that's his journey. Is he going to be able to break away from this, despite it always calling to him? Yeah. The undercurrent of the film is entrenched in that Reagan era, which for a certain part of the country was associated with good times and everything and prosperity and sort of this return of the 50s. But I think the reality of it is that the trickle-down economics that we were all promised didn't really make its way to everybody. There were certain people living in the margins of society, which is supposed to be H.I. in the film. The 80s were also marked with a prison population explosion. The gap between the rich and the poor was now widening all of a sudden in a way that it hadn't in previous decades. So it's a situation in which a guy like H.I. can exist, at least on screen, and still seem sympathetic to the audience. We're basically talking about a desperate man. He robs these places without bullets. Yeah, he has a lovable loser vibe. Oh, know, for sure. You know, Yeah, and there's a completely different pace to this movie than Blood Simple. Oh, yeah. The breakneck pace. He's in and out of that jail, and you're going through this big, crazy montage. All within the first few minutes, he's narrating stuff. And, and you're, you're like, okay. about the cycle, but the way it's happening, it all does feel very circular. Yeah, because... Every time he comes back, someone off screen is reminding Ed about something. Right. All the way up until when she's getting married and she's being reminded of the bouquet or something. That's like a recurring thing. And then there's a person mopping the floor. And every time he comes back into the jail, the person has inched 
further as if it's all <laughs> right. one big yeah. cleaning going on. There's tons of sight gags and little visual jokes and right. things like that. It's definitely crammed with lots of funny stuff that, again, I wouldn't necessarily describe as laugh out loud all the time, but very amusing and pleasant. Totally. Hi and Ed marry and move into a desert mobile home, which the narration refers to as suburban Tempe. <laughs> I liked that because there was no one around them. It looks like they're in the middle I of the know. desert. <laughs> It looks unlivable, really, but this is where you're starting to get a glimpse at the have-nots, and not too far down the road here, we'll get a, a glimpse at how the haves are living. How hot do you think it would be in that trailer during the day? It's got to be awful. <laughs> I didn't see any window units in the windows. No, just living in the desert. <laughs> Some life. Hi gets a job in a machine shop. They desperately want children, but Ed is infertile. And they cannot adopt due to High's criminal record. After the success of Blood Simple in 1984, the Coen brothers planned for the Hudsucker Proxy to be their next film. However, the projected budget for the film at $40 million wouldn't work for their producers at Circle Films, so they wrote Raising Arizona instead. H.I.'s work uniform logo shows he works for Hudsucker Industries, which became the setting for the Hudsucker Proxy when it was eventually released in 94. Sometimes I think that if you can just come up with that perfect image for a poster, for a box cover, yep, then you're already halfway there because the lawn chairs in the desert yeah. with the baby and the sunglasses. You're getting my money. Yeah, you already have achieved half the battle as far yeah. as a comedy goes. You've already set up a That's... scenario that people are like, okay, yeah, I, this seems interesting. <laughs> I can vibe with this. <laughs> But yeah, I think I was familiar with that imagery before I even saw the film. Almost, it feels like ingrained in your life. Like I knew that picture, the cover of the VHS, way before True. I knew what this movie For was. For sure, yeah. And so the happy couple settles into sort of a suburban malaise. Ed quits her job, mostly out of depression. I was going to say, you think there was some opinions going around the office on her marriage life? I look at the world of raising Arizona as a judgment-free zone. I, I think, think so. her coworkers probably didn't say anything. We're happy for Ed. She finally found someone. <laughs> she seems a little unstable. Everyone yeah. was just sort of crossing their fingers. <laughs> <laughs> but due to the fact that she can't have children, she sort of falls into her own little rut, quits the job, high considers returning to a life of crime. They don't really know what to do. I can't help but wonder, though, how this way of thinking would be considered under a more feminist 2023 lens, because there is a little tiny section of this movie that does feel like it is saying that procreation equals completion equals happiness, and anything short of that, you can't be happy. And I don't the, think that that message is really one you would see in a movie now at all. Well, agreed. It isn't oppressive or even offensive in any way or anything like it's that like, but it well, is definitely else, there it's sort of like well what else is there essentially which is again i don't think they would put that out there i agree now. yeah <laughs> but then high and ed learn of the quintuple sons known as the arizona quints born to regionally famous furniture magnate nathan arizona played by trey wilson who we all remember from bull durham that's really the only other of thing course. I know him from yes as the manager our desperate couple sets off with a plan and then 
sort of like The Departed, the credits start 11 minutes in. I know. 11 minutes may not be 25, but this movie's only 90. It's an awesome title sequence, though. Yeah, it is really cool looking. And it does come out of nowhere because you're 11 minutes into this movie. And you're like, wait, what? As stated, the Coen brothers seem to be interested in something tonally very different from their debut film, Blood Simple. And while that first film is all neo-noir, Raising Arizona is wildfire screwball comedy, this shift in genre also allowed the Coens to escape the claustrophobic morality of Blood Simple, a real all-or-nothing reality-driven world, and enter the forgiving safety net of fantasy and imagination. Realism is now much more fluid. An example of what I mean is that in the world of Blood Simple, you couldn't kidnap a baby and remain sympathetic. Yeah. Because Blood Simple is the real world. Raising Arizona is this heightened reality where you can be a convenience store robber who kidnaps a baby and you're still the hero and likable. And it all makes sense. One of the things that I was watching Siskel and Ebert talk about this movie, and this is definitely not the phraseology Ebert used, but he definitely seemed to be walking away thinking that this was making fun of trashy people. Whereas I could see why. Yeah. But I don't think it is. And Siskel had that take, too, that these guys love these characters. I like think so, yeah. yeah. Because now that you look at the length and breadth of their career and see the type of characters they always write, right? they've written dumb characters who are good, and they've written dumb characters who are bad. Mm-hmm. And I think that when it comes to the Coens, it's much more a question of morality rather than intelligence or right. wealth or anything like that. And I do think that they view High and Edwina positively. Same. And that they were trying to write specifically decent, nice people. Because we'll do Blood Simple eventually on this show. The people are all terrible in that movie. They're all awful. I think High's motivations to change his life are solely driven by the fact that he loves this woman and he wants to make her happy. I don't think that he really cares to do this pursuit of a family. Got well, left to his own devices. I think it's more. Well, for her. You, you generally you well, need the mother too. Well, I know, but <laughs> I just feel like he is more driven by wanting to make her happy than actually having a family. Well, I think you could probably say that about a certain percentage of people sure. out there that yeah. their motivation is driven by making their loved ones love them or be happy or make it work. Meaning. I don't care either way, but mm-hmm. I'll be I'm willing to do this with you because you want to do it. Totally. But I do think that the point of the movie is him trying to figure out what he wants. Right. <laughs> I don't think he really knows everything, but then yeah. like a lot of people when the baby is put in front of him, he falls in love and For sure. realizes who he is and wants to change. And yeah. then it becomes more of a frustration at an inability because yeah, the world is working against you. Right. And this other life just always calls to him. It never goes away. It's an easier choice. Yeah. And I think that's true for anyone, and it doesn't have to be a life of crime. It could be, I want to go out to the bar three or four nights a week, but my wife really isn't that type of woman. She would rather stay home. She wants to maybe start a family, but I'm still in the mindset of like, well, we're young enough to still party all the time. 
that could be the temptation. Yeah. It doesn't have to be robbing convenience stores. It could be drinking. It could be partying. It could be hanging out with certain people that are maybe bad influences. <laughs> it could be anything other than growing up, maturing, however you want to phrase it. I don't think that it's smart or safe to say, to go along with what I was saying before, that there's really only one answer in life, and that has to be procreation or family or whatever. Right. But you can sort of back away from the specifics of this story and think about choosing to do the right thing. If you want to go that high level, let's get out of the weeds entirely and just go all the way up. We have a character who faces this temptation. He lives a life of crime. Now he's at a, a point in his life where he is afforded the opportunity to choose to do the right thing if he can make that right choice. Yeah. But yeah, I think specifically in this movie, it's about maturity. It's about growing up, realizing that there's more to life than just yourself. It's interesting, though, that this is the story that they came up with to go in such a different direction than Blood Simple, because I would say that just based on a couple of titles you can come up with off the top of your head, the 1980s were a time where Hollywood definitely had baby fever. And oh, this yeah. oddly fits in with movies that I don't think most people would consider on this level <laughs> more mainstream. But Three Men and a Baby. Yep. Baby Boom, which we know the right. Coens watched because they were talking about yeah, watching yeah. it when they were writing one of their movies. I think Miller's Crossing, actually. Look Who's Talking. Yep. There's a million others. This baby fascination that was going on in Hollywood, this one fits right in. And it's just interesting that these auteurs who have these grandiose ideas, who are writing scripts, original, unique, innovative ideas, and then they're also mixing in very mainstream things that draw in audiences like babies <laughs> well there's the brilliance of it i am curious as to what ethan cohen's movie is gonna be like it comes out i think in february i believe matt damon is one of the people in it okay and margaret qualley it's called drive away dolls or something all right well i do like margaret qualley because we've seen joel's first solo yes and now Everyone was thinking that Ethan Cohen was going way broader, and I kind of thought it was a big, broad comedy, too. But now that I'm looking at the cast, I don't know. I was a little intrigued. Yeah, I'm intrigued. Hi and Edwina kidnap one of the Arizona Quints, whom they believe to be Nathan Jr., intending to start a family of their own. Which no one's ever really quite clear which baby it is, it seems. <laughs> Not even the Arizona <laughs> that, family themselves. Yeah. The whole kidnapping sequence is when the movie fully commits to straying from reality. Yeah. This becomes very hyper-realism now. It reminded me a lot of Looney Tunes, a lot of Tim Burton. Yeah. One of the things that I was going to bring up is it almost seems like a Pee-wee's Big Adventure type world. There's a little bit of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. There's a little bit of Batman Returns. Yeah. Some of these movies came out before Raising Arizona. Some came out after. But yeah, I never really thought of Tim Burton and the Coens together at all, but... A you little bit in here. how they've yeah. staged this scene, the Arizona parents mm -hmm. are reminiscent of Tim Burton characters yeah. at times. I thought so too. I thought it was interesting that it's Edwina who doubles down and insists because I think it's her mission. High goes in there, yeah. looks at the babies, comes all the way back out to the car, isn't going to do it. Right. And Ed is saying, no, go back in there and do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was watching like a little video breaking down the movie a, a bit and they were talking about how in this scene him taking so much of his time is him setting himself up to be caught and yeah a lot of the things that he's doing throughout the movie is like 
just to be back in his cycle. Self-sabotage? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's definitely a possibility that sometimes whenever you're handed an opportunity to be happy yeah. in life, you don't recognize it or sure. you flat out reject it or run away from it. Yeah, no thanks. But it isn't that direct in this movie. He loves Edwina. If you asked him straight up, he would want to be with her. That's he wants right. to stay married to her. Later in the film, when she starts talking about divorce, he does not seem happy about it. But subconsciously, yeah, a reversion, a recidivism, if you will, back to yeah. the old life. Putting himself in less than desirable situations and never treating them with some urgency to get out of them. In case you haven't seen the film, I I think it needs to be pointed out that there's a quote in the newspaper that the McDonough's see, which says... Sometimes I think we've got more than we can handle or something like right. that in relation to the twins. And they take that very literally. Yeah, I'll go ahead and take that and put it in my pocket. And Which I think the Coens have created characters here where we can buy that to a certain extent. Yeah. I don't know what the intelligence level of Ed is supposed to be, but for High, I don't think it's particularly Mensa level or anything. No. So I could definitely buy him taking that very literally. Yeah, well, they don't need this many. Edwina, it seems to be more of she's convincing herself that she's doing them a favor. Right. But deep down, she knows, she knows that this is not. She was a policewoman. I know. <laughs> well, obviously, she has a certain conflict in her life. Just the fact that she married a convict. <laughs> I thought you were going to say an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> He reminds me a little bit of his character in Wild at Heart, which is why when yeah. you were launching into that whole thing about your pretend list that you made up, <laughs> that I immediately started going into the Wild at Heart thing because I had already thought of that. When are we going to bring up Wild at Heart? Right, and talk about? Because in that film, Sailor, he lives his life by a code and the whole uh -huh. thing. And yeah, High doesn't really run around saying that very often in this movie. doesn't have a snakeskin jacket either. No, but... They aren't that far off. No, I know They're, it is similar. They could be related. And that's like a, a big time road movie. At a certain point, this feels like a road movie. Not through the whole time, but I, I feel like some of the second half. Okay. I I don't really see that, but okay. I'll let you have it. Okay, thanks. <laughs> there is driving in it. I'll give you the driving. <laughs> it's a driving movie. <laughs> There's long shots of the road. Maybe for Leonard Smalls, it's a road movie. Because yeah. who knows where he's coming from? Hell? Well, when he kicks off, it kind of reminds me of Never Ending Story when that wolf is all of a sudden in pursuit. The nothing. Yeah. Did this come out the same year as Never Ending Story? Wasn't that know, like 87-ish? It was somewhere around this time. Hmm. Some parallel thinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fifteen babies played the Arizona quintuplets in the film. One of the babies was fired during production when he learned to walk. The mother went so far as to put the baby's shoes on backwards in order to prevent him from walking. Wow. <laughs> she really wanted him to be in this movie. Desperate much, Mom? Yeah, that's the thing. People assume that parents like wouldn't want to hand over their children or whatever. Yeah, right. They're holding up those babies like fucking Simba, if ready for Hollywood to snatch them up. <laughs> only knew how hard life is for child actors. I don't never... really think being a baby on screen counts <laughs> as being a child actor. <laughs> They're not the Olsen twins. <laughs> Yet. While that's happening, High's former cellmates, Gail and Avelle Snotes, John Goodman and William Forsyth, escape prison in a torrential downpour. Yeah, now, like, all uh, this talk about infertility and birth, 
Doesn't this seem like a muddy birth or emerging uh, out of this hole in the it's ground? Certainly a, a Shawshank Redemption level escape. <laughs> He's pulling out going through a veil upside yeah. down. <laughs> I feel like you would drown doing that. <laughs> That's a wild image. It's weird to see a young William Forsyth after just watching Rob Zombie's Halloween where he right. plays the degenerate boyfriend yeah. of Sherry Moon Zombie who's talking about her daughter's dumper. He yeah. says dumper. That's what always is so disgusting. Weird to see him without a mustache, really. I feel like this is a guy that just needs a mustache. <laughs> I feel like this is a guy that I'm going to look like in about 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I've had some dates. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like William Forsyth. <laughs> I'd like you to meet Gail and Evel Snopes. My pair is ever broken in <laughs> Boys, this here's my wife. Well, at least we've done Kind of late for visitors, isn't that high? Oh, well, yeah, honey, but these boys just got out of the joint, so we got to show a little hospitality. Well, now, H.I., looks like you've been up to the devil's business. Hey, is that a him or her? It's a little boy. Got a name, does he? Uh, so far, we've just been using Junior. We call him Junior. <laughs> you mean, you mean J.R., just like TV show? <laughs> That's good. Welcome home, son. Where's he been? Phoenix. Uh, he was uh, visiting his grandparents. They're separated. Oh, would that be your folks, ma'am? No, I'm afraid not. Well, I thought you said your folks was dead, H.I. Well, we thought Junior should see their final resting place. Why don't you boys have a seat? Hi, it's two in the morning. What's that smell? We don't always smell this way, Miss McDonough. I was just explaining to your better half here that when we were tunneling out, we happened to hit the main sewer line, dumb luck that. And we followed that you to- You mean you busted out of jail? No, ma'am, uh, we released ourselves on our own recognizance. What Evel here is trying to say is that we felt the institution no longer had anything to offer us. My lord, he's cute. He's a little outlaw. You can see that high. Now, listen. You folks can't stay here. Ma'am? You just can't stay. Now, I appreciate you being friends of high and all, but this is a decent family now. I mean, we got a toddler here. Say, who wears the pants around here, H.I.? <laughs> Gail and Evel arrive unannounced at the McDonough trailer on the night High and Ed kidnap Nathan Jr. Much to Ed's dismay, High's old acquaintances have arrived hat in hand and pressure mounts for High to allow them to stay. It's not long before their presence will start to tempt High to return to his former life of crime. That first night after their arrival, High has an intense nightmare of a monstrous biker named Leonard Smalls. Oh yes, dreams a factor here. Leonard is played by Randall Tex Cobb. He also clashed a bit with the Coens, it seemed like, although there's a little bit less information about it. No one really talking out of school. It just seemed like maybe they didn't get along. Hmm. He also didn't really know how to ride a motorcycle and crashed it. Oh, boy. So there was that. <laughs> he certainly looks like a guy that could ride a I motorcycle. I think so, yeah. 
The character of Leonard Smalls was created when the Coen brothers tried to envision an evil character, not from their imagination, but as I've said, one that High would have thought up. And I think that's important to note because I think there's an interpretation of this movie, despite the fact that other characters see and interact with Leonard, where you can just view Leonard as an extension of high. Right. And we'll get into that more later because I have more of a general interpretation of all the characters coming up. But well, yeah, I think the whole Roadrunner tattoo. <laughs> it's a woodpecker. Is, I'm sorry. Yeah, woodpecker <laughs> tattoo is a way of conveying that. Yeah. You brought up dreams. This does seem more of a premonition than a dream. Yeah. And he has another prophetic dream later in the film. It's interesting that we're doing this movie coming off of Greatest October where we talked a lot about this phenomenon in A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, even the beginning of Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. There's this whole transference of dreams into reality, which is different than your standard, I'm having a nightmare or a dream, and then waking up, and then none of that happened. I know, it's all bleeding together. But horror movies started that trend at a certain point, but this movie is interesting because... I don't really know a lot of screwball comedies where characters come out of dreams and are real. It's never treated as supernatural well, in the yeah. film, but it kind of feels like it in a weird way. And that's definitely one of the things that stands out about this movie is just how unique the world is. I definitely think that Leonard is supposed to be a little bit of a Mad Max parody in some oh, way, yeah. shape, or form. He does look like straight out of Thunderdome or something. But not in a way where he seems to be making fun of no, no. those movies. It's almost as if they're just borrowing a character from that world. Right. It's interesting the leeway we give to filmmakers we consider great. Well, but then again, we don't give that same leeway to others. Because whether it's Tarantino and, and his pastiche style or the Coens clearly just aesthetically taking a character from something else and not really putting enough spin on it to be parody... That's the thing. Like, there's the line between homage and stealing stuff, and I never am clear as to where things fall. People who are good, yeah. it's an homage. Right. People who stink, <laughs> it's stealing. If we like them, it's homage. I'm sure that people who are super fans of this film might be pushing back on what I seem to be suggesting, which is that they stole this from Mad Max. And I don't really think that. There's nothing directly lifted or anything like that. And obviously, the Coens are awesome. If I was ranking filmmakers, I would even put the Coens ahead of George Miller. Oh, yeah. But I see that all over the place. Parody of Mad Max. That word, parody. I've seen that for years in relation to Leonard Smalls. I don't really know if that makes sense because I feel like to be a parody, you have to be... Something to be laughed at. Yeah, there has to be... Well, even if it's not laugh, just there has to be a commentary. There has to be a spin on it. There has to be something. It just seems like you've taken a character from a different film... Not one specifically, because not like Leonard Smalls is in any of the Mad Max movies or any other movie, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. and I, well, An extra from those <laughs> movies and just lifted them. Well, to go back to my other reference earlier, much like the wolf in NeverEnding Story, I think this guy is just relentless evil. Who else have the Coens written that is relentless evil, like a force approaching? I, I did get some Anton Shakur yeah. vibes, including when he goes in to meet with Mr. Arizona. Oh, for sure, yeah. And the part where he bursts into the trailer? Yeah. That's like exactly. I know, it was weird. I hadn't watched Raising Arizona in a while before we did No Country last November. So I don't know how much we got into this. I know that it was in the notes. 
I can't remember. I think I took a lot of it out, though. But I believe I mentioned that there was a little bit of an echo from Raising Arizona because there's that part where Sugar shoots the bird right. for no reason. Yeah. And there's the parts this with guy. the grenades and the bunnies and the weird shit. It's a little <laughs> bit more cartoonish sure. in this movie, but it's the same thing. He's just killing animals right. to show how evil he is or whatever. Yep. The shot in which the camera moves in on Florence, Arizona, discovering that Nathan Jr. is gone is a direct homage to The Evil Dead, a film on which Joel Cohen was an assistant editor. And the lullaby that Edwina sings to Nathan Jr. is called Down in the Willow Garden, a folk song about a man sentenced to death after brutally murdering his fiance. Oh, no. <laughs> I thought it was funny because her fiance left her and also... I was thinking about Inside Lewin Davis right. and the crazy songs that they used to sing, these <laughs> yeah. stupid folk songs where you're like, what is this about? I know. <laughs> is this about lighting a miscarriage on fire? What? Wait, what? <laughs> Yikes. So sometimes you're like deciphering these insane words, like the blood on my hands. And you're like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> Go back. Go I back. Know. You're like, how many people were killing people and then writing songs? About everyone it, yeah that was an era yeah. you know how in there will be blood yeah <laughs> how he just kills that guy pretending to be his brother and buries them out in the woods. that's a folk song everyone was doing that yeah. for about 150 <laughs> years in america <laughs> if you just go dig out in the woods you'll probably find a skeleton yikes that night i had a dream i drifted off thinking about happiness birth and new life but now I was haunted by a vision of... He was horrible. A lone biker of the apocalypse. A man with all the powers of hell at his command. He could turn the day into night and laid to waste everything in his path. He was especially hard on the little things, the helpless and the gentle creatures. He left a scorched earth in his wake, befouled on even the sweet desert breeze that whipped across his brow. I didn't know where he came from or why. I don't know if he was dream or vision, but I feared that I myself had unleashed him. was the fury that would be as soon as Florence, Arizona found her little Nathan gone. As High watches the sunrise on day one with baby Nathan Jr., he says, Sometimes it's a hard world for the little things. This is taken from Rachel Cooper's observation in The Night of the Hunter from 1955, 
It's a Hard World for the Little Things, which is an incredible film. And if you haven't seen it, check it out. I might have to add that to our schedule. At some oh, point. yeah. I don't think it is now. Once the Arizona family discovers the missing child, the story hits the news. I really like that part where they're questioning Nathan Arizona outside of his store. And at no point in the film do the Arizonas come off as bad people, per se. In fact, at the very end of the film, Nathan Arizona does something very magnanimous for and generous. Sure. But there is a little bit of a Gone Girl vibe. I think so. Where he's smiling and plugging his business. Yeah. When he's supposed to be talking about his kidnapped He's child. got a little bit of a Mayor Vaughn vibe. This store will stay open. Which of your children was kidnapped? Uh, Nathan Jr., I think. <laughs> <laughs> Not 100% sure. In all fairness, they had five babies that supposedly look the same, even right. though- clear- I think that's just part of the joke. Clearly the babies don't look the same. Yeah. They are actually overwhelmed. I think that is real. I don't even think that is a joke. I think yeah, that if you're new wild. parents, you suddenly have five babies, and they don't seem that young either. They're a little bit older. Because <laughs> yeah. later in the film, he insinuates that they had fertility issues. I, right, yeah. So he's around 40-ish, and he's like, "What? I got five babies, and then one of them's missing. I think it's Nathan Jr. We don't know. Five babies. I'd throw myself off the George Washington Bridge. Well, they're all in one giant crib, and they lay them under their sign that says their names, but yeah. uh, what they don't think the babies well, will move. I know it is one of these things where a kid is born with a certain identity. Somebody gives them a name, and it could just so easily be like mixed up. Yeah, when there's like a bunch of kids in the mix. Well, one of our friends has twins. We should ask him if they ever got mixed up. Yeah, we should <laughs> on Tuesday. <laughs> on Tuesday. Next, we learn that Leonard Smalls is, in fact, a real person, and for some reason, he seems to be tracking the escaped Snotes brothers like some kind of fucked-up bounty hunter. One of the most hilarious lines in the film does come from our friend Bill Forsyth. Oh, yeah. Why aren't you breastfeeding? (laughs) Oh, boy. As he's watching Edwina feed the baby with the bottle, and then John Goodman chimes in. He's like, yeah, you definitely could, or something like that. Well, these are prison type. I think it's a fair question. <laughs> Maybe not one that you actually need to ask out loud. She doesn't look pregnant. The baby seems still pretty new, right? Look, Ed and Hi aren't exactly the best actors when somebody's trying to figure out what's going on with this kid in this house. Yeah. <laughs> They're giving it all away. High's foreman Glenn visits with his large and unruly family. Glenn is played by Sam McMurray, and his wife Dot is played in a nearly unrecognizable. Yeah, I know. Frances McDormand here. And I didn't recognize her until the end of the movie. (laughs) I saw her name in the original credits, and I'm like, oh, I didn't remember her being in this. But then when she was on screen, I did not place that as her. Yeah. They are offering unsolicited parenting advice amid their children's horrific. An unrelenting misbehavior, this which of course is hilarious. Does seem like the universal nightmare of having children is then having to deal with other people that are parents. Oh, for sure. I just Oof. heard somebody talking about that, I think yesterday. A lot of opinions. It's part of life that hopefully I'll never have to experience. Yeah. But yeah. Oh, I've heard it firsthand from plenty of our friends. All, all of a sudden, everyone's a professor on. Raising children. (laughs) Or just anything. Yeah. The local sports teams. Right. Politics. The news. 
whatever. No shortage of experts. Our worst nightmare, yeah. somebody having opinions about movies. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I have to walk away, generally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime I'm ever around Matt's other friends. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> but their unpleasant stay is p- punctuated by Glenn's suggestion that he and High exchange wives, causing High to punch him in the face. Glenn is a real piece of work. Yeah, he stinks. Did you think that Dot is actually in on this, or is this just Glenn's Uh, Unclear. I think that Dot is in on it, but that plays in with what I think they're supposed to represent, which is this garish version of the American dream, suburban domesticity that he's afraid of, Mm -hmm. but the version of it that where it goes wrong, they don't really seem to love each other. They don't care about their kids, that kind of thing. Right. We'll get into that more in a minute. I liked Glenn's botched Polish jokes. Oh, yeah. He can't even do the jokes, which are basically (laughs) saying how dumb Polish people are, I guess is the point of Polish jokes. Right, yeah. And he can't even say them. (laughs) Their son comes over and starts spraying high, like his crotch. Oh, yes. Mr. McDonough wet himself. Mr. McDonough wet himself. (laughs) <laughs> the horror. <laughs> I'd be punting that kid out yeah. the front door. <laughs> I'd just be like, can we not host people anymore? Well, like, that's his boss. Yeah. <laughs> I like how even in your version of this, it's always the wife. <laughs> and you have to like ask permission. Can we just not do this, please? I know. <laughs> Where's that baby? Where's he at? Go find him, honey. <laughs> Cut it out, Glenn. He's asleep right now. Shit, I hope we didn't wake it. Can I just sneak a peekaloo? Come on, kids! Get away from Mr. McDonough's car! <gasps> What's his name? Uh, uh, hi, um, hi, Junior, till we think of a better one. Well, why don't you call him Jason? I just love biblical names. If I had another little boy, I would name him Jason Caleb or Tab. <gasps> oh! He's an angel! He's an angel straight from heaven! No, honey. I had all my kids a hard way. You just gotta tell me how you got this little angel. What do you do? Just fly straight down from heaven. Well, uh... you're gonna send him to Arizona State. <laughs> Need a beer, Glenn? Does the Pope wear a funny hat? Yeah, Glenn, I guess it is kind of funny. Say, that reminds me. How many Polacks take to screw up a light bulb? I don't know, Glenn. One? Nope, takes three. (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute, no, I told him wrong. Here, I'm starting again. How come it takes three Polacks to screw up a light bulb? I don't know, Glenn. Because they're so darn stupid. (laughs) Shit, man. Listen up. What's the matter? Don't you get it? No, Glenn, I sure don't. Well, shit, man. I guess that's why they call it a way homer. Why's that? Because you only get it on the way home. I'm already home, Glenn. You wet yourself, you wet yourself. Mr. McDonald wet himself, Daddy. (laughs) Say, that reminds me. How'd you get that kid so darn fast? Me and Dot went in to adopt on account of something went wrong with my semen. They said we had to wait five years for a healthy white baby. I said, healthy white baby, five years? Okay, what else you got? Said they got two Koreans and a Negro born with his heart on the outside. 
It's a crazy world. Someone ought to sell tickets. Sure, I'd buy one. <laughs> yeah, Buford's a sly one. He already knows his ABCs. Watch this. Hit the deck, boy. <laughs> but like I'm saying, how'd you get the kit? Well, this whole thing is just who knows who. And then over here, you have favoritism. Yeah, Ed has a friend at one of the agencies. Maybe she can do something for me and Dot. See, there's something wrong with my semen. Say, that reminds me. What you gonna name it? Ed. Ed Jr. But I thought you said it was a boy. Well, as an Edward. We just like that name. Yeah, that's a good one. See, I don't really need another kid, but Dot says he's here getting too big to cuddle. Say, that reminds me. Mind you, don't cut yourself, Mordecai. <laughs> then there's a diphtheria tetanus, what they call the diptet. You gotta get them diptet boosters yearly or else he'll develop lockjaw and that vision. Then there's the smallpox vaccine, chickenpox, the measles. And if your kid's anything like ours, you're gonna have to get all those shots yourself first before he'll ever take them. <laughs> Who's your pediatrician anyway? We ain't exactly fixed on one yet, have we, huh? No, I guess we don't have one yet. Jesus, what, you gotta have one? You gotta have one this instant. Yeah, well, what if the baby gets sick, honey? Even if he don't get sick, he's got to have his dip tat. He's gotta have his dip tat, honey. You started his bank accounts yet? Have we done that, honey? We gotta do that, honey. What's that for, Dot? That there's for his orthodonture and his university. Now, you soak his thumb and eye, die, and you might get by without the orthodonture and won't knock a thing off the university. <laughs> right! You take that diaper off your head. You put it back onto your sister. Honey, what? You probably got the life insurance all squared away. Have we done that yet, honey? Gotta do that, hi. Eddie here's got our hands full of this little angel. Yes, ma'am. What would Ed and little angel do? Truck came along, splattered your brains all over the interstate. Where would you be then? Yeah, honey, what if you get run over? Or you got carried off by a twister? See, that reminds me. You hear about the person in the Polish persuasion? He walks into a bar and got this big old pile of shit in his hand, and he says, hey, look what I almost stepped in. Yeah, that's funny, all right. You're damn right, it's funny. Shit, man, what's the matter? I don't know. Maybe it's wife, kids, family life. I mean, uh, are you, are you satisfied, Glenn? Don't you ever feel suffocated? Like, like there's something big pressing down. Yeah, I do know that feeling. I don't know. And I told Dot to lose some weight, but she don't want to listen. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, I know what you mean. I mean, you got all these responsibilities now. You're married, you got a kid. I mean, looks like your whole life is set down. And where's the excitement? Yeah, Glenn, I guess that's it. Okay, that's a disease, but you got a cure. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Dr. Glenn is here to tell you that you can heal thyself. What do I got to do? Well, you just got to broaden your mind a little bit. Like, say if I was to ask you, what do you think about Dot? Ah, she's a fine woman you got there. Okay, now you might not know it to look at her, but she's a Hellcat. That right. T-I-G-E-R. Well, what's that got to do with uh, Now, don't rush me. The thing about Dot is, she told me this. She thinks, she thinks you're cute. Yeah, I'm trapping you negative, and I could say the same thing about Ed. 
are you talking about, Glenn? What am I talking about? I'm talking about sex, boy. What the hell are you talking about? I'm talking about Lamore. I'm talking to me and daughter swingers, as in to swing. I'm talking about wife swapping. I'm talking about what they call nowadays open marriage. I'm talking about... Keep your goddamn hands off my wife. Later, High can't bring himself to reveal his reasons for punching Glenn in the face to Edwina. Her innocence must be protected. And it's strange for a woman complicit in a kidnapping. She does possess a certain amount of purity. She's a very different presentation of womanhood from Abby, Frances McDormand's amoral, femme fatale, and blood simple. Following in the theme of motherhood, infertility, and pregnancy, the logical extension then takes us to 1996 and Marge Gunderson in Fargo, super pregnant, also played by McNorvin. Yep. The moral center, I guess, of the extended Cohen universe. Probably their most moralistic character. In this story, it's important that Ed remains somewhat aspirational rather than truly flawed or realistic. Perhaps that shortchanges her character depth, but it serves the story because, as you said, so much of High's motivation is her happiness. So to keep her pure, he thinks that he can't even mention the wife swapping. Oh, yeah. High is at a crossroads in life. The Snotes brothers, childlike oafs covered in dirt and perpetually shoveling grub into their mouths, (laughs) represent- Messes. The life high is leaving behind. I'm and sure Matt is tempted to make the connection that he is high and I am the Snotes Brothers <laughs> <laughs> and Lindsay is Edwina. But I'm not in this movie. Your Snotes Brothers is Ruggers. <laughs> so I've got which is a bar that. for people who are not from here. His past, wild and reckless and criminal, and we have to admit, probably kind of fun at times too. They have arrived at the same moment at his newfound responsibility, this gateway to adulthood and domestic life. True, there is, of course, the requisite irony at just how this responsibility has found its way to High and Ed because they stole this responsibility. But nevertheless, for the purposes of this film, in their world, the responsibility is real. They assume this baby is theirs now and that they will get away with it forever. They don't even really seem that worried about getting caught at any point. There's yeah, no the manhunt. There's no helicopters in the sky. The stakes never really feel that high until you get to some of the action stuff towards the end of the movie. But yeah, it doesn't really feel like no one's feeling a sense of, oh, the walls are closing in on us because we've committed this crime and we're kind of facing a ticking time bomb at this point. It never feels that way. No. But the temptation in High's life, whether it be the internal one that's always there or the Snotes brothers arriving, that wasn't enough. Here come Dot and Glenn, a warped parody of a domestic nightmare, boring and yet also strangely sinister at the same time, surrounded by children they don't seem to want or care about, awful personalities, obnoxious behavior, and they're swingers too, which feels a little kink-shamey now that people are more open about things. But the point is not that they have a kink, it's that, in the context of this film, it's insinuating they are bored with each other sexually. Right. That is the point in this movie, at least from High's perspective, because mm-hmm. he's seeing it as 
this is the worst possible outcome of me and Edwina staying together is their lives. Dot totally. and Glenn. Oh, yeah. We don't want to fuck each other anymore. We have a bunch of kids, whether it's Nathan Jr. and other babies we've stolen or maybe you eventually <laughs> get pregnant or something, yeah. but whatever. We don't care about them anymore. If you want to take it a step further and really get into the character, he gets a little rush from his lifestyle, like drugs, right. except he's stealing from convenience stores. Everything he's experiencing now is a rush because it's new. He's in love. He's making his woman happy. They stole a baby. He loves the baby. Now he's got to worry about the baby, take care of the baby. He's all consumed with this. Mm-hmm. And it's exciting. But then he sees Dot and Glenn and he thinks, Oh boy. Well, wait a minute. Does this excitement fade? Am I going to be headed towards some shitty, boring swinger situation? The swinger part of it makes it seem like it could be fun. I know. It's like, <laughs> but tight. meaning like he doesn't want to fall out of love because he's very much in love. Right. And that's what he's looking at the swinger thing. He's not looking at it like, oh, this would be really cool and fun. <laughs> it doesn't really seem like these guys are in like the eyes wide shut circle. <laughs> no. <laughs> that suburban Tempe eyes wide shut circle. It reminded me of that part when Christopher's about to flip in The Sopranos and then he sees that family oh, yeah. at that store and he immediately <laughs> runs to Tony and tells them that Adriana's informing. He's like, I can't live a normal, boring, no. suburban life. And that is kind of what High's experiencing. He's seeing a vision of how it could go wrong. And so this is that one last thing that pushes him to do what he almost does. It's weird. The movie sets it up for where he's about to make some big choice, and then he doesn't actually ever get the chance to do it. True. But whatever. High's being tested. While standing at that aforementioned crossroads of life, he's being tested. And that stress manifests itself in Leonard Smalls, a bad dream come to life, a literal walking, talking, motorcycle riding, manifestation of his internal struggle. Leonard can be viewed as a part of high in a sense. His id, maybe? Yeah. His animal instinct, his His dark side. Yeah. Do I commit to family with the woman I love, or do I give in to my base urges, my animal instincts? A life out in the wild or here at home? Mm -hmm. Am I an outdoor cat or a house cat? (laughs) And he's kind of delaying really committing. Everybody's got a hungry heart. (laughs) Just listening to that on repeat, driving around (laughs) suburban Tempe. (laughs) Suburban Tempe, which is one trailer, a broke down car. And a couple of lawn chairs. Wake up, son. I'll be taking these huggies and uh, whatever cash you got. No, no, not by the hair on my chinny chin chin, said the little pig. <gasps> Look at him. Then I. Then I'll huff. And I'll puff, and I'll blow your house in. That son of a bitch. That son of a bitch. You son of a bitch! Better hurry it up. I'm a Dutch with the wife. You son of a bitch! Come on now. (laughs) 
that night, starting with Ed and Nathan Jr. in tow, High succumbs to the temptation to rob a convenience store while buying diapers. I loved that shot of when Edwina decides to bail after she realizes he's robbing the store. Mm-hmm. She gets into the car, and all in one shot, the car backs up like into the camera the camera backs up with the car right. and then all in one motion moves forward as high's coming out of the store all in one unbroken shot yep looks really cool that is cool he's wearing a pantyhose mask which he also does in wild at heart that's right lugging a big box of huggies around the pimple face clerk is shooting a gun <laughs> there's shots <laughs> ringing out everywhere i love that they're willing to kill this guy when he's basically just running with diapers. It's just the uh, Wild West here in suburban Tempe. Does he take cash or does he end up running away before there's any cash? Is it just the diapers that he has? I thought it was just the diapers. Because then later the cop is just shooting his yeah, gun through a grocery store all over the place. It's nuts. This ends up being like a wild chase sequence over some huggies. Yeah, I think that in order to analyze a scene like this, you have to understand that it's definitely not right real which for some reason people were having a hard time with and i guess it's probably because the movie wasn't marketed as being a goofball thing and they had done a serious movie before i would or think something. this would be a hard movie to market probably it, just seems, it did reasonably yeah. well but i just think it's weird that a lot of the reviewers didn't seem to grasp that this was a screwball comedy but if you really liked blood simple these guys are somebody whose career i'm really interested in and then this is the next thing. Yeah, it would be weird for yeah. sure. Yeah. It would be an adjustment until I think maybe you saw Miller's Crossing in 1990. And then you thought, okay, these guys have range. They're doing a, a couple of different things. Right. It's and then like, obviously by the time you get into deep into the 90s, they're established as some of the best. But yeah, this is really only their second I know. movie. So I get why people would be weirded out or not really being able to vibe with it at first. It's like going from It Follows to Under the Silver Lake. Yeah. But to be fair, that's a pretty small group of people. I don't think Blood Simple is huge or anything. It's a long, extended chase. They go through the streets. It feels a little bit like Keystone Cops, which I know is weird because there's actual police in this movie, but Mm -hmm. it's nuts. There's a Doberman. At one point, High gets hit by a car. He gets into that car. They go through a house where people are just living their lives. They go through a grocery store. The cop's firing the gun in the grocery store. Meanwhile, Edwina recklessly driving with the baby in tow. At one point, she's going back for him, and then things all just sort of come together where he runs out of the back of the grocery store and they get away. It's definitely becoming a tumultuous family situation. Yeah, these things do add up. I think that is part of why Edwina wants a divorce is all this shit. Yeah, the grind on Edwina... She already went out on a limb as a policewoman to marry a criminal. I know, and he kind of, like, lies to her about stuff, too. These dudes are going to leave in a couple days. That doesn't seem to end up being the case. Yeah. My favorite part of the chase sequence, though, is just getting to run around in a 1987 grocery store. I know. I would love if you could just somehow be transported into stores from different eras and just get to look around for a while, maybe touch a few things. Oh, I know. I'd love to go to an old Horns department store. You don't get to take anything, and you have to come back to reality, but I would love to just go into a Blockbuster from 1991 or a grocery store from 1987 or a mall in L.A. in 86. This is like a uh, Michael Crichton book. (laughs) 
the technology exists and this is what we use it for. Just looking at old storefronts. <laughs> <laughs> hey, did you know that this used to be a toy store in the 80s? <laughs> Your kids are literally opening the backseat doors to fall out of a moving car to not have to hear you. I just love that that technology exists and this is what we're using it for. <laughs> just to go stand in a blockbuster and not be able to rent anything. Just to like look at the stands where they had the candy for sale. Yeah. At the front. <sighs> Imagine they had a big cardboard standee of the Lost Boys or something. Yeah. <sighs> Jamie Gertz. <laughs> Edwina saves High from the police and the pack of dogs and the overeager store clerks. The clerk in the grocery store is a fucking shotgun. <laughs> But she is none too pleased. When they finally arrive home, Ed demands that Gail and Evel depart first thing in the morning. <laughs> Evel was getting comfortable underneath that quilt on the Oh, couch. yeah. No, I mean, these guys are definitely lingering. There's so many empty Budweiser's laying around. <laughs> As Ed and Nathan Jr. sleep, Hyde decides to leave his family to join Gail and Evel in a bank robbery. In the kitchen, he writes his goodbye letter. This is where we learn his name is Herbert and not Hare. <laughs> I wish it was, though. It's a heightened take on a familiar tale. He's not good enough. He doesn't have the money. There's a lot of self-doubt. It's very universal, even though this situation seems crazily specific. <laughs> Which I think is the genius of the Coen brothers. Right. They have these very strange, unique, heightened scenarios, but deep down, there is human nature. There's For something sure. relatable there. Still, we're being reminded of the specter of Leonard Smalls. He seems to be maybe getting closer. The last time we saw him prior was when he was at the jail. He seemed to be on the track of the Snotes brothers, but there's also reward money being offered for Nathan Jr., which I guess would maybe increase the spotlight that they feel like is on themselves, the scrutiny, the potential for it. It's weird. It's the 80s. Technology was way different. The world was way different. As fucked up as this seems to be to say out loud, I think it was probably pretty fucking easy to steal a baby and get away with it. How would you know? After a certain point, once the baby grew for about yeah, two months, no, I know. How, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't look the same. I mean, it's dark, but I do think it was easier to get away with some of these crimes every crime basically but yeah i was wondering because yeah there's dna tests and stuff but you'd have to be so sure that these people had stolen your baby to get a dna test or something like that you know no i know you couldn't just be like well let's dna test every baby in the city (laughs) or anything especially when you have real parents that are like i think that i know which one of my kids is missing they don't even really know which kid it is eventually though if this was the real world, they would get caught if they stayed there because someone would realize that she was never pregnant, where did this baby come from, all of these different things. Because even Glenn figures it out eventually. People are going to figure it out. But they don't realize because they're not that bright. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying that if you stole a baby and weren't them, it would be easy to get away with. I'm not saying they could get away with it. (laughs) Obviously, sitting in that trailer... Not these dopes. Edwina was almost married. People know her. She had a job. She wasn't pregnant. (laughs) They'll be like, hey, did you adopt this baby? Is there a record? Yeah, she was a figure of the law. 
as they're doing that little montage over what everyone's doing that night, they go back to the pimple-faced clerk from the convenience store, and he's got the magazine jugs oh, open yeah. right. on him. And I was reading the little article headline hmm. names on the cover of the magazine, and one just said, tits times two. <laughs> okay. And I thought, well, they do generally come in pairs. I'm yeah. not sure what that means. <laughs> that was a big reveal in that magazine. Well, the name of the magazine is Jugs. You would <laughs> think that the readers yeah. would be aficionados. <laughs> they would know that they usually come in twos. In the morning, Leonard Smalls visits Nathan Arizona Sr. at his furniture store, Unpainted Arizona, and introduces himself as a bounty hunter. Ostensibly, his involvement in this whole little affair began with the Snotes brothers' prison break, but now he's interested in Mr. Arizona's missing infant. Leonard tells Arizona that he will find and return his son, not for 25000 the offered reward, but $50,000. However, Leonard reveals a plan to sell the baby on the black market if Nathan Sr. refuses to pay. Which is also another really dark factoid in this otherwise light-feeling movie. Oh, you mean the baby that was sold for $30,000 in 1954 is just blown up <laughs> at the end of the movie? Yeah, well. <laughs> yes, Leonard refers to himself being sold for $30,000 as a baby, and that was in 1954 dollars, which would be equal to just over $120,000 in 1987. Hmm. So he's suggesting that the 25000 is a little light. Well, apparently whoever he ended up with was a pretty cool parental figure. Raising him to be this yeah. Who awesome were these people that were badass? willing to spend yeah. thirty thousand dollars on a baby, but then turned him into this guy, a maniacal killer? Before High can run off with Gail and Avell, Glenn returns to the McDonough Mobile Home in the morning to fire High. He also reveals that he is aware that High and Ed have stolen Nathan Jr. from the Arizona Quince. Instead of turning them in, though, for the reward money. Glenn informs High that he and Dot want custody of Nathan Jr. for themselves. Oh, no. A move. A move is being made. He drives off after dropping his threat, telling High he has 24 hours to break the news to Ed. This is where you get a little more of that Fargo crossover, too. Yeah, it's a funhouse mirror, though, because there are echoes of Fargo, No Country for Old Men, even Big Lebowski, which is a comedy, all these other movies, and yet... It feels way more cartoonish and true. The stakes feel way different in this movie. Agreed. But yeah, there are lots of similarities to their other works yeah. scattered throughout. Like these types of people trying to leverage their positions, but just really not knowing how to do it. From inside the trailer, Gail and Avell overhear all of this, and following a prolonged struggle between High and Gail, they kidnap Nathan Jr. for themselves. So now Nathan Jr. has been double kidnapped. I know. <laughs> a kidnapping within a kidnapping. <laughs> the rare kidnapping yeah. within a kidnapping. But who is the kidnapper? And he's actually kidnapped again. True. Momentarily. Yeah, there's a lot of changing of hands of who's the keeper of Nathan Jr. Now let's say Leonard Smalls is successful and he sells the baby on the black market and the parents are aware. They could buy him back. No, I'm asking, oh. are the parents who are purchasing... Nathan Jr., then kidnapping him for the fourth time. Mm. <laughs> Are we at that level, then? I think so. I think that's fair. Because if you're aware it's a stolen baby, and then you're taking custody of that baby. Yes, that's a kidnapping. I think, yeah. He's breaking the world record yeah. <laughs> for amount of kidnaps. 
Once freed from bondage, Hyde joins with Ed, who has reached her breaking point, to rescue the baby. But the strange thing is, as dumb as Gail and Avelle seem to be, their hearts are kind of in the right place when it comes to the baby, and they soon develop some kind of emotional bond I know. with young Nathan Jr. Even if they're ill-equipped to actually be caregivers and have no clue what to do. They're sucked into the life now. The pair of criminals grow attached to Nathan Jr. after he smiles at them. (laughs) (laughs) Although the two nearly leave him behind at a robbed convenience store, causing them to both swear up and down that they'll never give him up. You sort of expect this gas station clerk to get the what's the most you ever lost in a coin toss discussion. Not being able to figure it out. It's interesting that we keep bringing up No Country for Old Men because of the Coen brothers. And there were a few of those people in the movie that we're going to talk about in recommendations. They popped up. Yeah, I in know. That movie. This is such a big moment, though. It's a pivotal moment in the movie because it makes you understand the type of person that Edwina truly is. Because I think to this point, she's a little bit of an enigma. She seems like a moral person, but then is complicit in a kidnapping. And even though she seems to want to do the right thing, she also seems oblivious to why kidnapping would be bad, which Which is is weird. She's compartmentalizing it. Yeah, but her own distraught at Nathan Jr. being taken from her allows her to empathize with Florence, Arizona, Nathan's birth mother, Mm -hmm. in a way that she was previously unable to. She suddenly understands Uh, what she's putting... Nathan's real mother through. And why this is a horrible thing. And now this pursuit to rescue Nathan Jr. becomes more than just returning him to them. It becomes we have to now save him and then do the right thing. Yep. It's a little bit of a wake-up call. Okay, then. I'm going to come back at five and check to see if you ain't cheating. (laughs) Hurry up. Open the door. He's a real cheerful little critter once he warms up. Hurry up. I don't know how high this one can catch. Six Mississippi, seven Mississippi, eight Mississippi, nine Mississippi. Got some baby grub, baby wipes. Got them diapers, them disposable kind. I got me a packet of blues. They blow up in a funny shape, at all? No, just circular. Say, where's Junior? What do you mean, didn't you put him in? No, I thought. Where'd we leave him? Seven hundred and ninety off Mississippi. Oh, 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 o
never going to leave him, Gail. The shot where Avell and Gail stop just before hitting the car seat with the baby in it was filmed in reverse with the car driving away from the seat. Oh, wow. It is a startling moment. Yeah, it's very cool and memorable. I was wondering, though, okay, so the, that means they're saying the baby is really in the car seat and it's right in front of the car. Well, that Oof. seems crazy. Imagine you accidentally put that in drive instead of reverse. Oof. It Gun it! Well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the baby actually isn't in there the moment that they actually hit re- reverse. I don't know. Well, but still, I was- dedicated to the filmmaking. Yeah, it was freaking me out a little bit. That was the world we were living in pre-CGI. <laughs> there were a bunch of moms being like, no, let my baby be in this scene. Yeah, putting their shoes on backwards. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you stand up. Don't you start walking. <laughs> Pushing the baby over. He's not walking. <laughs> Next, Gail and Navelle try robbing that bank, the one they were going to do with High before they stole Nathan Jr., and they bring the baby into the bank during the robbery. <laughs> None of these guys are very good at adjusting their plans. They're all very predictable in what they do. But they somehow leave the baby there, too. The robbery is actually a truly hilarious laugh-out-loud sequence. I was fucking losing Oh, yeah. It. The whole freeze-or-lay-down thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then when Avell thinks he's so smart for coming up with the code names oh, yeah. bit... <laughs> Making that it so has, obvious <laughs> that this, he's coming up with a bit. Yeah. That was kind of reminding me of like Bottle Rocket. Yeah. There yeah. was definitely some Bottle Rocket going on here. The fact that both Gail and Avell keep calling everyone in the bank hayseeds, <laughs> even though they're dumb <laughs> as rocks. <laughs> oh, God. Just as the two idiots are realizing they left Nathan Jr. behind, a blue dye pack explodes in their stolen money sack, covering them both and the getaway car interior in blue paint. They are intercepted by Edwina and High, who quickly realize the dum-dums do not have the child. The (laughs) dum-dums. And then when Gail and Avell realize that, (laughs) this actually was cracking me up too, that High and Edwina are going back towards the bank to go get the baby. (laughs) Avell is running after them saying, take me with you. Oh, yeah. Because they're so sad that the baby's not with them anymore. (laughs) Well, it was part of the crew. Once again, sitting in the middle of a lonesome desert highway, strapped into his car seat, Nathan Jr. is then snatched up by an arriving Leonard Smalls. High has finally come face-to-face with his dream nemesis. In the ensuing struggle, High fires a handgun, distracting Leonard long enough for Ed to grab Nathan Jr. Leonard severely beats High while Edwina escapes. High uncovers Leonard's matching woodpecker tattoo, the same logo as his own, before managing to kill Leonard by detonating a hand grenade on Leonard's jacket. Which is a pretty cool sequence. And it is was... cool. The movie is so slapstick goofy, though, that it was a it's, little weird seeing weird. a guy explode. Yeah, yeah. It felt like something more out of UHF, the Weird Al movie, where weird shit like that would happen, but tonally it was really goofy and slapsticky. Right. Which is a totally different vibe. I mean, than but the, the explosion products. is kind of it's goofy that there is an explosion like this. This just kind of feels like a movie where normally the bad guy is arrested or Oh yeah. Even weirder would be seize the error of his ways and becomes a good guy or something. I don't know. But that it just kind of feels like well, this movie. I, although we're also living in a world where it seems like most crimes go uninvestigated. 
the police were like, it doesn't matter at all. Yeah. <laughs> he like does it. Who matter. cares? A guy blew up. What else do you need to know? The lone, <laughs> the lone biker of the apocalypse was blown up <laughs> like the shark from Jaws, and no one even asked any questions. We're like, whatever. It doesn't matter. Now, Hyde does mouth, I'm sorry to him. Right yeah, it was like when Shawn Michaels super kicked Ric Flair. Exactly. During Ric Flair's retirement. That's what I was WrestleMania. thinking. I'm sorry. I love you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was taking that as a further extension with what we were talking about before, where you can definitely view this as they are two sides of the same coin. If yeah. Hyde doesn't make the right choices, he could be this guy. Totally. Not really, because he's not that evil, but it's supposed to scare you straight. Mm-hmm. Much like Dot and Glenn were scaring you straight from becoming complacent and falling into a, a rut within your marriage, too. There's yep. all kinds of hazards on the road of life. Agreed. <laughs> I kind of landed that plane. I think so. <laughs> it was a little bit rocky. I but was I, willing to go on that journey with you, there. and we got there, yeah. <laughs> The cigar-smoking bird tattoo was originally the logo of Clay Smith Cams in the 1950s, a company making high-performance engine parts. The logo with the trademarked clenched cigar represents Smith himself and is known as Mr. Horsepower. Smith closed the business in the 60s, and the logo was adopted by what is now Tenneco for their thrush muffler line. All right. Is you were wondering what that logo I was. Because it's kind of like Woody Woodpecker, but not yeah, really. Yeah. It does look like Woody Woodpecker. And I am in the market for a thrush muffler. <laughs> Whatever that is. That just makes me think of Tommy Boy. Yeah. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Brake pads. Yeah. Or whatever the fuck they're selling. <laughs> Remorseful, High and Ed sneak back into the Arizona home to return Nathan Jr., but are caught by Nathan Sr., Upon realizing that they're not working with Leonard and then learning the reason behind the kidnapping, Nathan Sr. sympathizes and decides not to report them to the authorities, which is definitely a fairy tale yeah, ending, of course. It's very noble. But it's fine within the context of this film. In yeah. reality, I don't know how you're going to explain that to the police. Yeah. Our bad. We found him. We got the baby back. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Move on. We have. I guess you could just say somebody came into the window and left him there, and we don't know who it was. There's constantly a ladder propped up against our back window. <laughs> like where Clarissa explains exactly. it all or something? Yeah. <laughs> when the couple tell Nathan Sr. that they are planning to divorce, he advises them to sleep on it. And where do you think that lands? They definitely don't get divorced. You can you tell the that they don't really real? want to. Yeah, I know. Neither of them want... They're those overly dramatic well, people that you know this... that are always making everything into a huge deal. When we go into this glimpse of the future dream sequence or whatever, I was trying to figure out if you're supposed to interpret that as real or not. Well, I think it's up to you. Yeah. I guess you could use the movie itself to say that High seems to have prophetic dreams. I was like, did this part inspire like that end sequence in 25th Hour? Because it kind of seems <laughs> similar to that. <laughs> That's such a weird pull, but it, it kind of is. Yeah. He does sort of resemble old Ed Norton. Right. <laughs> and then you never actually even see their faces, though, the right. old versions of them. Yeah. So I don't even know if that's them. I would imagine it's probably not, since you don't see their face. Right. In the final scene, High sleeps beside Ed 
and has a series of prophetic dreams, Gail and Avell willingly return to prison upon realizing they aren't ready for society. <laughs> Glenn is ticketed by a Polish-American police officer following, quote, one Polak joke too many. And Nathan Jr. becomes a football star after receiving a Christmas gift football from, quote, a kindly couple who wish to remain unknown. The dream ends as an elderly couple, perhaps high in ed, enjoy a holiday visit from a large family of children and grandchildren. High reflects on the reality of this dream and his conviction that he and Ed have the ability to be good and raise a family, if not in Arizona, then somewhere close, maybe Utah. (laughs) Which is kind of a weird and funny line to end it on. Three years later, Miller's Crossing, and we're up and running. I guess you would probably think of Miller's Crossing as a return tonally to I think so. Blood Simple, but this was a pretty big hit, so it wasn't as if they couldn't go back to comedy. I think they were just at a point where as long as they kept the budget right, they kind of could do what they wanted as long as it was reasonable. I think Miller's Crossing is kind of like a blend of the two. Yeah, it's a little bit more comedic than right. Blood Simple. But it also is a period piece, but you're not sure what period because it's kind of made up. Right. It also seems like it takes place in a fictional world. Yeah. Obviously, we're going to get to plenty more Coen Brothers films down the road, including Blood Simple, which I think would be fun to talk about. Yeah. Maybe we have something planned for next November. We'll see. Always credit this one with having an influence on me. It was just sort of eye-opening to see something like this. At that time, I just yeah. wasn't as into quirkiness and weird goofiness crossing into the realm of seriousness. It was its own thing that I hadn't seen anything like at this point, and it sort of opened my eyes to different styles of filmmaking. It hits me that way, too, because it seems like an adult movie. Yeah. Because on a much lower scale and on a much lower talent level, I feel like I had seen things similar in tone and weirdness and wackiness, but done through kids' entertainment. Yeah, yeah. Never presented as an adult movie. Right. It was like the show Pete and Pete. And this was taking what kind of feel like genre sensibilities, whether that's horror or whatever, and putting that into a, a comedy. What yeah, yeah. seems like a straightforward comedy, but you're doing all this weird camera shit, and you're taking influences from all these weird places, and... Yeah, it, it's a truly unique experience. I think when I first saw it, I was at an age where I wasn't really appreciating the cool camera stuff. No, same. In fact, That's, I probably got more of that on this viewing. Yeah, that kind of stuff was probably lost on me. I certainly wouldn't have connected it to Sam Raimi or anything because I just wasn't super observant until later in life, probably after seeing a bunch more movies. But I'm surprised that it was such a seminal movie for for you and I I honestly don't remember it being on any list but if you say it was then I'll believe you I was thinking of that old old list I feel like that was the only time I ever really asked for a list and we I I think we got to most of those yeah we did yeah in the last two years that you were like come up with I don't know it's probably one of those moments where you're like well I gotta ramp up for like the end of the show (laughs) and then you like doubled back and we're like well actually we're doing way more episodes than we've ever done I took a look at your list and I was like ooh, (laughs) never mind What else was on it again? Well, one was another David Lynch movie that we're going to do. Okay. I don't know. I'll have to dig it up. (laughs) Okay. So they were very important to you that you remember them all. I don't know. Your Honor. (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't know if this is conclusive. I don't know. I, you're I'm always having me do I'm these joking little exercises. You. All right. <laughs> okay, folks, the episodes have been super long. We're going to try to rein them in a little bit, just a little bit, sometimes. Some of the segments are unnecessary for every episode. In this particular episode, we're just going to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon for recommendations, and we're not going to do any other segments, including email. We do have some to read. We'll save it for next time. The segments will be a little bit more fluid. We're also going to try to get into the plot a little faster like we did today. I know that within a few weeks, we'll just be right back to every episode being super long. Not that we've had any complaints. It's mostly for me and my sanity. Yeah, I agree. I think the listeners may actually like the longer apps. They seem to do well download-wise, and I, I usually get compliments on the long ones. But <laughs> They like the length. Well, a lot of people who listen to podcasts want to just knock out a work day. Yeah. So if you could do an eight-hour podcast, they would be really happy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tempt me. No. <laughs> <laughs> just wait till I reveal to Matt this secret I, yeah. solo podcast that I want to do as part of our if, feed um, <laughs> rob zombies halloween 2 inspires three hours i'd love to know the movie that inspires eight hours i was gonna do a comprehensive episode by episode thing but i connected all into one massive podcast of community okay i thought it was gonna be mama's family <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome <laughs> do you think even one person would listen to that that would be great if it like went into the feed it just was like one download and it was 47 hours of me <laughs> by myself talking about Mama's Family yeah. episode by episode. No breaks. <laughs> what are you doing? What? what? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. So let's get into recommendations. We're going to keep it simple. I would lie to you and say, oh, we were saving Killers of the Flower Moon until after Greatest October, but we actually didn't see it until it had been out for a little bit. Despite doing a movie podcast, we really don't rush to see big event movies anymore. We did see Barbenheimer pretty quick. That's true. But yeah, we only have one of those in us a year. Yeah, we're not making it out on opening Fridays very often anymore. So we waited a while to see the new Scorsese film, three and a half hours. We're just going to talk about that for a minute. Matt, I'm going to let you talk first. Yeah. If you'd like. If you don't want to, I can go first. Well, I'll start with, didn't really have a problem with the length. I thought it moved along pretty well. I knew roughly what the story was going into it. I will say that I thought the take was a little bit different than I was expecting. I guess I wasn't really. I'm going to say this mild spoilers we probably should have prefaced before we launched into anything but we're not going to get into like specifics but if you don't want to know anything about the movie turn it off Mm -hmm. because i want to feel free i don't want to get into specific specifics but i think we should feel comfortable enough to say things it's been out for a few weeks for sure so okay continue the fact that dicaprio's character is like an idiot (laughs) because i didn't know really what these characters i just know that They were involved in this horrible thing. Right, yes. I actually didn't know whether or not DiCaprio's character was supposed to be a good guy or a bad guy. Yeah. Even when the closing credits were rolling. Right. (laughs) Now, I should say this. I was a little fucked up. Mm -hmm. 
so I probably have to see it again. Okay. To be fair, I kind of disagree about the runtime. I didn't think this material justified it, and I had zero problem with The Irishman, which I think completely justified the runtime. I didn't really think there was enough there in this movie for it to be three and a half hours long. I do think it could have been shorter, but I was never struggling through it. I wasn't struggling. I wasn't bored. I'm just saying it could have been shorter. It's not like everything in this movie is so crucial. I think you could tell the same story in an hour or less. I I just think that he liked that pacing for this story. I also had a hard time understanding what was happening (laughs) (laughs) throughout most of it. I don't know. I guess a lot of people have been debating on what they thought about Brendan Fraser's performance. Some people like hated it and oh, have really? been openly critical, and other people have been saying he was great in it. I have to admit, I didn't think he was in it that much. I, I know, remember I didn't him think being it was, in like two scenes. I didn't think it was worth commenting on. He does have that one really big moment, right. and that's what I think everyone's talking about, because how they feel so about that. almost cartoonish. Yeah. And Scorsese has even commented on it, saying how much he loved it and yeah. and how great it was. And he wanted that. So it is what it is. The guy just won an Oscar, so he's open season, I guess, sure. for people taking shots. He's not really that big of a factor in the movie, and neither is... Jesse Plemons? Yeah, is he only I, in that one part? Because there were rumors that he was the star of this movie at one point. Well, he's definitely in more than, when you say one part... It might have been, I guess, higher than I thought, because I'm really having a hard time (laughs) remembering a lot of this Once he shows up, he's in it fairly consistently. I just feel like it doesn't have the oomph that you want it to have, because these people in this town are getting away with this absolutely Oh, yeah, he's in the FBI. Yeah, I remember him showing up. I don't want it to come across that I hated it or anything. I would just say that I'm not ready yet to put this into the Scorsese masterpiece class or anything. I didn't get that out of it. Now... Other people have. Clearly, it's gotten really rave reviews. It has the opportunity to get nominated for a ton of Academy Awards, et well, cetera, et cetera. So I, I don't know. But for me personally, I wasn't anywhere close to this is a masterpiece or anything like that. It's clearly well-crafted, though. Well, yeah. Yeah. It like, is a Scorsese movie. With it is DiCaprio, well-made. With good actors and good performances. Yeah. I felt less than satisfied with the story, the script. It was a different angle than I was expecting. The performances are great. The three leads, yeah. De Niro, DiCaprio, and Lily Gladstone is her name. Right. I guess when you're doing a based on a true story and you don't want to completely do like a Tarantino alternate history, you're kind of constrained as to what you can do. But it just sort of ends. Yeah. And they did that stylized ending let's say i don't want to spoil right. it specifically yeah which i'm not 100 percent sure how i felt about that either i felt a little distracted by a certain person being on stage yeah but i understand i i have to say that in all fairness i'll have to watch it again i'm gonna wait till it's available at home but i will watch it a, a second time before i can really decide how i truly feel about it but i yeah. wasn't blown away or anything. The way that the people are portrayed is really weird to me. Well, I guess I just wasn't expecting it to be this way. It was reminding me of Killer Joe, where it's, a, it's like these people have this plan, but they're like so dumb, but like people are really getting killed from it. Yeah, I mean, that plays into the sadness and the helplessness, where even though the Osage people are 
per capita the richest in the world. Yeah. They're manipulated by people in this community. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, it almost corrupts their way of thinking. And it just feels like they accept it as like fate that they're all going to have short lives. And it's just going to be unexplained or uninvestigated. And that's it. Yeah, which is crazy sad. But the people in the town committing the crime seem like idiots. Oh, yeah. You know? Everyone kind of seems out of it. The whole De Niro character, his whole character, who's the mastermind of all this stuff or whatever, people are like, you're making way too much of a scene of all this. You're so obvious in what you're doing. Yeah. And it takes other people a while to catch on. But once the FBI shows up, and I know we've gone way far down the road of spoilers at this point but once the fbi shows up the whole world comes crumbling down but it is funny watching the portrayal of the early days of like the fbi because a they let like dicaprio's character like talk to that other criminal dude with none of them in the room well there's a way of thinking about the movie where it's intentional that there's no mystery that it's obvious Mm -hmm. that it's only going to go one way that you know what's happening and that it will end a certain way because obviously we know the story. It's not like it was unsolved. And that our job as the audience, when confronted with this important and shameful chapter in American history, is to then just sit there and contend with that and think about the reality of what happened. Right. It's not really about ooh, this is happening. Now this is happening. No, that's yeah, happening. Yeah, and you're suspend you're like you're it's suspenseful or anything like that. It's more having to confront. Yeah. How could this happen? Yeah. A, a dark history. The dark side of humanity. I think I would have preferred a little bit more time with some of the victims and not yeah. just that montage of death because for three and a half hours, you're just telling the story from the perpetrator's perspective, which I know is something that Scorsese gets criticized for occasionally and he did a really good job i think in this film of bringing in actual native american people to consult and to rewrite it and to mold it in the right way and bring in that added perspective because i think if you went from just a straight adaptation from the historical knowledge we would probably only get a very one-sided take. And I think we get a little bit more. In fact, a lot of the coolest shit, visually and story-wise, I thought was the Native American stuff, especially at the beginning. I really was interested in them discovering the oil and all that stuff, but that stuff is sort of breezed past pretty quick. And then I just think that there was something else there in how you could you could do this same story but give us more of what happened to those people that died specifically. I agree. I did want to know more about the other characters in town. I get that too many of them died for there to be time with all of them, but maybe pick a few. And I know it does seem like there were storylines left unexplored, even though it is three and a half hours, but it could have given way to other things. Yeah. I I think that's, that's what I'm saying. I need to watch it again and I'll just leave it at that. I need to see it again. So by the time we do our annual year in review, give us a second. This will, likely be in both of our top tens i oh, would yeah. imagine unless i suddenly see a lot of other good movies because i haven't seen that many this year so 
by that point, I'll have watched it again, and we'll maybe revisit our discussion on it. But sure. I would recommend checking it out just because oh, the greatest American filmmaker has just released another film. Yeah. And he's in his 80s, and we don't know how many there's going to be. So there you go. And it's still just from a production standpoint. I mean, it's one of these spectacle movies. Yeah, there's one example, and there's not many, but there's one where the streaming situation has benefited us because this crazy streaming dick measuring contest between all of these rich streamers, I think, gave Scorsese two movies, yeah. The Irishman and Killers of the Flower Moon, that he either would not have gotten to make or he would not have gotten to make the way he wanted to, for sure. Yep. That that part's for sure. He may have gotten to make one or both of them, but they definitely wouldn't have been like this. So, Agreed. There's one situation where he got to spend a ton of money on something. So Sometimes it's working out for us. We'll bring email back next week. We're going to do physical media spotlight probably just about once a month, something like that, in case you're wondering. Follow us on X slash Twitter at GreatestPod. You can reach us via email, greatestpod at gmail.com. We'd love to read your email on the show. If you'd like a free sticker, let us know. If you have a listener request, please reach out. As stated, we still have about eight slots left for 2024, so get your request in now. We'll work out all the pricing and everything with you. Greatestpod at gmail.com and at greatestpod on X. Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. Matt, anything else? Nope. I'm happy with the runtime this week. (laughs) Yeah, not too bad this time. We kept it somewhat reasonable. Keep it tight. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Down in the willow garden where me and my love did meet, there we sat according, my love dropped off to sleep. your health? What do you want with the job?